welcome to The New Disruptors. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. In 2009, Evan Ratliff disappeared, or at least he tried to. After writing an article for Wired Magazine about how people make themselves go missing, he tried the same for the magazine and managed to stay hidden until readers pieced together breadcrumbs he'd left behind. As the co-founder, CEO, and editor of The Atavist, Evan is quite visible these days. His Wired story, Vanish, opened his eyes to the potential of telling rich stories that unfold across different kinds of media. The Atavist was founded to tell long-form stories, features that are too short for a book but too long for a magazine. The Atavist continues that mission with monthly long-form features, but found the content management and distribution platform it had created was too valuable to keep to itself. The company launched a separate line of business that allows organizations, whether media-related or not, to create rich stories that can be read in many formats and across many kinds of devices with relatively little work. I talked to Evan in this podcast about telling stories and building platforms. Evan, thanks for being on the podcast. I'm happy to be here. The basis of the Atavist, if we talk about its genesis, it seems to come from the notion of opposition to the idea that long-form reading is dead. We were told when the web started that people would migrate to reading on screens, that they would have shorter and shorter attention spans, that the unit would be the page, and the page wouldn't scroll very far. And the reason that people love The New Yorker and The Atlantic and Harper's and all these other publications that have been publishing long-form nonfiction and, and in some cases fiction, that the reasons that people love these would fade away because we'd be retrained and we wouldn't like it. You disagree with this notion. Oh, I always kind of disagreed with that notion. I mean, it's almost now it's actually almost hard to remember exactly that how many people were saying that because it's kind of shifted back so far that there's so much happening in the digital long form world. But were so many people saying either attention spans are declining or the web isn't really a medium for letting people read longer pieces because they're sitting at their desktop or what have you. That was kind of where everything was going. It was sort of shorter, shorter, shorter. And as blogging really took off, you know, the whole idea of giving people sort of bite-sized bits of information. And I was working as a magazine writer. And so, of course, partly just out of self-defense, I sort of thought, well, is that really true? I mean, there's sort of infinite landscape in terms of what you can do online. Is it really true that people are not ever going to read anything online? And there were already some hints that that wasn't true like well before we got going. Yeah, that's what it seemed like to me too, is that there was a, a punditry kind of opinion that was forming maybe from people tracking page views. Bandwidth was scarce, so people couldn't load huge things. We didn't have mobile devices, and mobile devices that existed used, you know, a crummy web interface or web uh, translation, and they didn't have real browsers, or and you didn't have apps on most platforms that could run until BlackBerry, yes, but they were rudimentary, but until Apple redefined that in 2007, we didn't have a real experience on the mobile side. So I felt like whenever people said long form is dead, it was people who didn't already read long form of anything. What's your definition of long form? Because it seems like that varies too. Some people talk about it as being what I think of a mid-length article. What, what do you define as long form? Yeah, it is kind of all over the map. I mean, I don't really have a strict definition. I mean, I these days I go by what we do, which is we do 5,000 to 30,000 words. And you know, something that's 3,000 words can reasonably be called a long form article. I mean, really, I think the guys at longform.org do everything above 2,500 words they, they would put into the category. Um, I think it's more, it's more like the feel of it than the actual, you know, how many words is in the thing. Is it a sort of 
in-depth approach to whatever the topic is. In our case, we're doing reported stories for the most part. So, you know, is it the kind of story where someone went out into the world, reported out a story, and is sort of unwinding it over many thousands of words? And it can vary in terms of what the actual sort of cutoff would be. I find it sort of funny, too, that one of the great proponents of long-form journalism has been Wired Magazine, where you worked for many years. You're an editor, a writer, feature writer. And even though Wired was documenting the change in how people consume media, it was still perpetuating this kind of old-fashioned idea, or people were thinking of old-fashioned is well-researched, longitudinally complicated articles that sometimes span the globe or spanned um, people work on for years or look at, I think in your case, there are pieces where you were looking at thousands of pages of court documentation. So where did Wired fit in that? Since you were there during, I won't say the transition on the web, but while a lot was happening um, while magazines were rethinking themselves, newspaper circulation was dropping, and and Wired went from being a publication that was you know totally groundbreaking in terms of what it covered in the mid '90s to being almost this avatar of exploring new directions in publishing, but also perpetuating this this older model of deeply researched articles. What was happening inside? wired as these transitions were underway it was an interesting place that's where i got my start and it was an interesting and sort of strange time to be there in that i arrived there in 1998 just as an intern and it had just been bought by Condé Nast. the magazine and the website had been split just in the time when everyone was fully coming to realize how important the web was going to be for all these publications wired actually had no website of its own the website was owned by someone else did lycos own it or something yeah, it was like Lycos and then Spanish they were owned company. by a Spanish company. Yeah, it was very strange. And they were down the street. And basically all they did was sort of put the magazine stuff online in an archive. And so the magazine at the time really was just, it was a print operation. That's all, that's all we did. I mean, it was fortunate for me in a way that the magazine had, for a long time, I think, adopted the principles of places like the New Yorker and the New York Times Magazine, that they had fact-checking, they had deep research, they had really, really good editing. And so that's kind of where I learned, which I think is, I think it's a bit harder for people who want to get into long form now if they've come up on the web and they've done, you know, people do wonderful writing on the web, but usually there's not that sort of system around you to kind of learn about how it works and how you do it. And I sort of learned through that. But then I actually left the staff and became a contract writer and then just a freelance writer before the web and, and the magazine came back together. So my whole tenure at Wired was actually, it was entirely a print magazine, basically, um, which was kind of interesting. Well, it's funny. It's so quaint. I mean, that was one of the, yeah, one of the great contradictions, right, is that... Um that that was in place. But at the same time, I mean, Wired was, you know, when you were editor and then back, uh, and then when you wrote uh, features after that, it, it was documenting, I think, this sort of, not cataclysm, that's the wrong word, but, I, you know, we're watching the magazine industry, I mean, even Condé Nast, which has done well, we're watching the magazine industry continue to implode, the newspaper industry continue to implode, and I think Wired's kept its circulation up there by by being out ahead of the news that's going on. So not just circulation, but also getting into new media, like having an, an early iPad uh, application. Um, but I think it's even in the coverage, people are, were going to wire to find out, you know, what is happening in this confusing world, because other publications seem to be ignoring it. They weren't hip to the fact that everything was changing in the economy, the means of doing business and so forth around it. And so it's, it's, I, I don't know if that's accurate. Do you feel like that when you were inside the publication that, that, um, that the story was being told there, but not elsewhere? Yeah, I think we did. I mean, I think over time, more and more publications have 
caught on. You know, technology is just so much more pervasive in people's lives that the early 90s Wired, which I read as a subscriber, was just way, way out in front of everyone. And then when I was there, there was still, and I think there still is, this sort of the premise that the goal was to kind of find big ideas before other people and sort of put them out there. And it means sometimes some of the stories fall flat or you can kind of grab onto something that doesn't end up turning out to much. But it does mean that I think that's what it brings to the readers. And that's what we were like trying to do. And I think that's what they still try to do is go find things and stories that haven't been told and really kind of like put them in front of people in this really artful way and not follow the news and and sort of figure out what's going on and then go report more deeply on something that's already been reported elsewhere. It's different than other magazines in that way. And I I think they still do it pretty well. I think it's definitely gotten harder because, I mean, if you look at, there's a great story that they're, it's in the works right now about this whole McAfee thing. And Josh Davis, a writer there, has been on that for months. Oh, yeah. It's fascinating. And they're exploring the new pu- new publishing models as they go by publishing a version of his story as like an instant book uh, just a few days after McAfee went on the lam. Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. I mean, because basically what happened was they were going to get scooped. They were going to get scooped <laughs> on their own story because they couldn't get it in the magazine fast enough. And so yeah. they just put it out as a Kindle single, basically. And... They get the benefit of that, and Josh is all over it. But really, he started working on that story is probably, if not a year ago, close to that, because he was in Belize months and months ago. So it's trying to combine that in-depth reporting that takes so long to do with some kind of model where you can get it out quick enough that it doesn't lose all its currency. Oh, well, let's talk about that, because I think that's, um, I mean, before we get into the specifics of the atavist, I think this is one of the things that people outside the news gathering world maybe don't understand. And I know that I don't know that I understood it until I was inside it very well, even though I was a an avid reader of The New Yorker and other such publications, is the sheer amount of time it takes to do an article of the scope that runs to thousands of words, even if it's 5,000 words or 10,000 words. It doesn't have to be a short, you know, a short book. The commitment by publications to fund this, uh, I mean, this is the problem with newspapers losing money. It used to be all, all this uh, so-called enterprise reporting, and we still have it. The Seattle Times, which is a family-owned or 51% family-owned paper, they st- still do things where they put several reporters on a project for two years and spend millions of dollars, sometimes including legal fees, and come out with these amazing pieces. Mm-hmm. Wired was willing to fund that. Connie Nast has always been through its various publications, always being willing to fund that. As publications shut down or budgets go down, the availability of the just the sheer dollars you need to fund long-form journalism seems to go away. So, you know, that's uh, tell me a little bit about that, what it costs to research a story. I'm thinking particularly there was a story you wrote for The New Yorker where, you know, I know you had to go through court cases and you met with the people involved and, you know, it went on and on and on. So, you know, what does it take to research a story that's of the depth that people can appreciate um, the whole scope of, of a big event or a, of a launched a story that spans years. Yeah. It's, I mean, that is, that's, that's always the hitch with, with long form. So there's been this issue about like, will people read it? And then the thing on the other side is exactly as you describe it, which is that it's just expensive to do because it generally involves sending someone somewhere to spend a lot of time with the characters or with the documents or trying to get into sources and that whatever that time is, that time also costs money. So, so that New Yorker story was a, it was basically about a con man who was also an informant for the FBI. And I spent, I think, 14 or 15 months on the story. <laughs> and I wow. took three trips to Detroit. Uh, and fortunately, a lot of the story took place in New York. So, you know, I spent days and days going around New York looking for certain people and trying to track down this guy who was missing and all this sort of stuff. 
if you did a, like a P&L on that story, like I'm not sure how much <laughs> money I actually made because I, you're not getting paid by, by time. You're getting paid by words. So, you know, you're contracted to a certain number of words and then when you turn it in, you get paid. So, but long form writing has always been a little bit that way in terms of the writers who are doing it. Partly they just love doing it. So they're always sort of putting in more reporting than they actually need to do it. Well, there was a model that you could turn, you know, Matt, John McAfee would write three pieces for the New Yorker and that would become a book. Has that, the change in the publishing industry, does that remove that possibility now too, that there aren't that many books of that sort published? So you can't take your Conman article, sell it as a book after you've put in this enormous amount of time and, and turn it into something else? You can. You can still do that. So the magazine articles do still do get turned into books. I think the book industry, of course, has all of its own issues. And the place where the book industry seems to be hurting a lot from just anecdotally from agents and people I talk to is kind of in the middle. So if your article is like a blockbuster yeah. and then you go get a $500,000 advance, that's actually still happening. But if your article is like pretty good and you want to go get a $50,000 advance or $75,000 advance to go turn it into a book, that is what is disappearing. I've been hearing about this for like a decade. It's the death of the mid-list is that publishers used to be willing to take a risk on new authors and they still will because they put very little money into them, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. They don't do a lot of promotion. They hope it'll break out. They'll do blockbusters. But the that was the uh, sustaining thing as an author, whether they are fiction or nonfiction author, they might have a book that sells 10,000 copies or 20,000 copies in a year and the publisher would keep that in the list and sign new contracts with them and now they don't yeah i think that's the hard thing in publishing i mean it's not surprising I mean, what you're doing in publishing and we we are dealing with this as well even at atavist is you know you're placing bets you're basically placing bets on on writing and how it's going to sell and so publishers as things get tighter they naturally gravitate towards more and more big hits or spending tiny tiny amounts of money on things that, you know, maybe one of them will break out, but you don't lose much if they don't. Right. And there's, there's the, uh, the cost of getting from the point of commissioning something, getting it into print or digital form and then distributing it and finding an audience. This is where I feel like the atavist where you're, you tinkered with and have a model now that produce, what is it now? Is it 20 something? Uh, I don't know what you call them. Are they publications? Are they stories? We, we always go back and forth about this. Like we, <laughs> Oh, good. I'm glad you do too. Yeah. It's, because we would be better, we're better off in some circumstances using one term or another. I mean, they're books, they're like short books or they're story. We usually just say stories. Sometimes we say titles. Kindle calls Because you're not singles. a publication. The Atavist isn't a magazine. The Atavist is a, and it wasn't, <clears throat> and we'll talk about how the Atavist is now uh, also a platform, but you're a, almost a facilitator of, uh, you know, even when you were pu purely on the editorial side, you're like a facilitator of getting stuff from one form out to people. And that's why you don't have a term that fits, right? Yeah. Although I would, I would say that we are a magazine, which is doubly confusing. See, the thing is we what we're producing <laughs> is like between magazines and books. And yeah. it has some elements of a magazine. For instance, we produce one news story every month. So we don't have subscriptions right now, although we're probably launching those in the, sometime in the near future. But if you go to our app, you'll find a news story every month. So we think of it like a magazine. And actually, we were a finalist for two National Magazine Awards last year. And there was some issue around, are we actually a magazine or are we not? And I think there's a case to be made that we're just a magazine where the feature well ate the entire magazine and then one feature ate the entire feature well. 
was basically like a magazine with one story in it. Oh, that's interesting. And which used to exist. I mean, there were publications before, say, the 1990s or even into the 1990s that were a single issue, single story because there was enough advertising sponsorship or other structures for money and there weren't other places to get it that you could have this happen at some level. I mean, that's the perfect name. The Atavist is you're going back to a model that used to work when the advertising and subscription dollar postage newsstand stuff wasn't all totally broken. That's basically the idea. Yeah. It's It's funny how every part of it is broken, isn't it? I mean, the advertising model is broken. The newsstand model is completely broken from what I can tell for print magazines. That's a disaster. And the postage model is broken. I mean, advertising doesn't have to be physical, but in the the, uh, actual distribution, the, the physical distribution side, that seems completely like it's fallen apart. When I look at Wired, I mean, they always seem to be doing pretty well right now from what I can tell. I mean, it's not like the magazine is super thin, but I mean, as an as an industry trend, I think you're right. I mean, that seems to be what's happening. But in terms of the how it affects like the magazines that I really love, I'm actually not quite sure that they're doing that badly. Well, you have superb taste, of course. I mean, that's the thing like with The Economist, for instance, that The Economist has increased its subscriptions. I should disclosure, I write as a freelancer for The Economist. So I'm, I'm pumping my own publication, but the, uh, they've <laughs> increased the their subscriptions substantially in the last 15 years because Time and Newsweek decided to go the path of making, you know, dumber and dumber stories over time and Newsweek is, is gone. And I think Wired took the same path. And I think you're on the same path with the Atavist on the editorial side. Before we talk about the platform part, let's talk about the editorial part where you didn't pick easy stories. None of these stories are, oh, this is a delightful tale. And I mean, I'm not sure, you know, I shouldn't make fun because there's great stories that are uplifting and whatever, but some of the best stories, the ones that are hardest. And I remember reading um, David Dobbs, one of your, was that the first one, the very early ones? It was an early one. It was, I think it was the fourth or fifth fifth one we put out i think was that the breakout story my mother's lover where uh, he wrote about um how he discovered his mother had had a lover in world war ii and he died in the war and it's just and he finds out of his mother's uh i shouldn't i don't want to spo- spoilers yeah. finds out of his mother's deathbed about it and then but i mean he did travel and research and unearth family secrets and it was was that the breakout story people were certainly talking about what you're doing but that's the one where i first remember seeing it in media other than the world covering publishing and the digital technology world around that time and it kind of coincided with getting some wider coverage in like the new york times and things like that i think it may have come out after we were in the new york times but that was certainly i mean that was a breakout story for us in terms of sales that it just it sold more than we had previously imagined we would sell any of them for it kind of blew our minds when it started going up and up and we sort of realized oh well they're the higher end of this is actually higher than we thought of it thought it was and because it's a digital publication there's a per unit cost when you ship something but there's no additional overhead i mean i know sure there's a little bit but you sell two hundred thousand or a million of something versus uh, fifty thousand and your cost structure per unit you get the advantage of scale yeah that's what's amazing about it and not only that but we can sell it anywhere in the world you can sell it on any platform so when uh, we started out just being on kindle and selling through our own app and then we were selling through nook and then we were selling through ibooks and now we're selling through kobo and kobo does surprisingly well in canada kobo is huge so there's just there's just access to this distribution that costs you all the time it takes to upload a file and you're there and then we've also done things like for our app we do an audiobook version of the whole story and you can kind of flip back and forth between listening and reading. But now we also sell the audiobooks on Audible. So it's just like the ability to get the story out in all of these different forms in front of readers or listeners or whoever. It just sort of like multiplies without costing you 
extremely more money to make that happen. Let me talk about the artist, you know, creator side of this, which is sort of part of the part of the value chain I'm trying to trace in the most tendentious way I could say it, I guess, uh, between what's the, the change that's happening in the way that people who create stuff are reaching the people who actually consume or want to participate in it. And as a writer, you know, I'm always looking at word rates and is this article effective for me? I Somebody offers me a flat rate and I say, thinking about it per hour, or I've got a family to support us. I know you do think about, all right, can I afford to do this? Am I subsidizing my work for publication X with work that pays better with publication Y or this really boring thing I do for someone else that may not be creative at all? And when I look at the Atavis model, it seemed like it's both beneficial to you as a publisher, of course, but that there's a component in there is you're trying to provide not an incentive to the writer, but you're saying there's a, the paycheck for this could be in such and such a range. And, and you can tell me about how you structure or in, in vague terms, I guess, at least uh, advances, but that there is this kind of upside is that there's all these sell through potentials that in almost any other platform or publisher or magazine that's out there doesn't have those. How does this work as a writer when I come into, uh, into the Atavist, um, as an editorial operation? The way that we operate is it's kind of more entrepreneurial all the way around. So writer will pitch us a story or we'll take a story to a writer. And then when we assign it, they basically get a fee and then they get a split of the sales, which is usually half, although we do negotiate all variety of different types of contracts. So basically they're getting the equivalent of a magazine fee. When they deliver the story, they will get X amount of money. So they're guaranteed that amount of money. Now, the sort of hitch in that is, their expenses also come out of that fee. So right. they need to factor that in. Normally in a magazine, you get an assignment. You're also, you just submit your expense reports and you get approved to go be sent places. So we're letting them decide where they need to go, how much they want to spend. It's going to come out of their fee. And then when we start selling it, they actually get royalties from the first copy sold. So normally with a book advance, you have to make up the amount of the advance in sales before you get any royalties. But we say, you don't have to make up the advance. You get, you keep that and then you get royalties from the first copy. So, the, you know, the idea is that we're kind of like in this together. So now let's go out and sell as many as we can. And if it doesn't sell well, then, you know, you're going to pay your fee minus the expenses. And hopefully that will amount to a decent amount of money. Probably not what you would have gotten for a full glossy magazine assignment, but a good chunk of money. And if it sells well, then you're making as much as you would have made writing it for a magazine. And if it sells really well, then you're making more than you would have ever made in a magazine. So it's funny because I, people always want to talk about the future of long-form journalism and, uh, and models and this and that. And we've never really put it forth as like the ultimate model for you know supporting all types of journalism. It doesn't necessarily work for all things. And it puts more risk on the writer. I wouldn't imagine we'd have a writer doing five out of his pieces a year because really what our writers are doing is they're mixing regular magazine assignments, book work, other pieces with, you know, a long out of his piece that they're spending months on. And that's really the way freelancing always works is it's this sort of hustle where you're piling up different assignments. You're doing some of them out of love, some of them for money. Some of them can make big money and some of them can't. And, you know, we trying to sort of fit into that picture and give another way to make it sustainable. Well, in that sense, you see, that's where part of the hybrid between a magazine and uh, a book comes in is that magazines typically pay flat fees and you don't get another 
penny unless something's produced in a different form in the future. And books, you get that advance, you might get expenses, separate budget, but that's still coming out of your end of it. Even if you get a big advance, you still get have to pay for expenses yourself from some part of the revenue. And you don't see dollar one, as you describe, until the book actually pays back that advance as your percentage of royalties. And you typically get a very small percentage of the royalties for the book. You have to enjoy the advance and hope you'll earn it out and hope that that percentage you get from book sales will actually amount to something too. So there's so many variables in the traditional model where either you're getting a flat fee that's probably inadequate, but you know lets you do it, or you get a royalty, but it's maybe you'll never see any of it or it'll be very meager. So it doesn't seem like you're coming at this in an approach that is says to an existing writer, it's not an offensive approach. Like we have a different model, but here are the various upsides to it that are different from the models you're used to. We try to be extremely transparent with the writers because I'm a writer. So I mean, that's why we started it. We Part of the reason we use this model is that when we started it, I had just written the story for Wired that was on the cover and it got more attention than any story that I probably will ever write again. This was Vanish? Yeah, yeah. So it was That's about- a great, and that's great, Pete. I mean, you, I know you won awards for it. It was in like the, the Yale Press put it in the 2010 uh, Best Technology Writing. I can't believe it's 2009 that you wrote it. In my mind, it was last year. I, I know. It's so fresh. But so, yeah, that was the story. I mean, that was crazily interesting and it spanned all this different media uh you didn't expect this kind of response obviously but um but there seemed to be a lot of planning so that you were spreading outside of the print magazine yeah it was, i mean there was a lot of things were seeded digitally and you know, people were trying to find me and the whole hunt was happening online so it was sort of inherently captured a, a lot of online buzz and twitter was just kind of getting really big and it was a lot of it was on twitter so you know, it had all these elements to it. And then when it was done, it was just people wanted, you know, it's just when you're a magazine writer, like you write a lot of stories that you think are really amazing, but no one ever says anything about them or talks about them and they just sort of disappear. <laughs> yes. And you kind of wonder, well, did anyone like that story? But, you know, for whatever reason, this one caught a lot of issues that people were interested in. And so I went on TV and I went on, was interviewed on NPR all these times. And at some point, even though I was completely happy with the fee that I got paid, I wouldn't have asked for a dime more and it was incredibly beneficial to me and my career and everything. I did think like, man, if I got some, if I got a royalty every time they sold a copy of this issue, like, I wonder what I would get. And that kind of planted the seed for doing this model to say like, what if I had said, I don't want any fee. I just want a royalty. Like, what would I have gotten? You know, that's that sort of idea that maybe I will take the upside. Maybe maybe I do want to take the risk. And I think that's something that every author wants, too, is that we hope that it'll catch on fire. But because we don't have a stake in a lot of that, it doesn't. I'm not saying that our interests are unaligned with publications because that's how we continue to get employed and, and hired is that we write stuff that people like and uh, get interested in. Sometimes it breaks out, but it feels like you came out of this with the notion, hey, we could align interests better. And you also have the Greenfield ability here. You you started a platform, you started Atavist with the notion that there's no print component, you don't have any of the conventional expense of any publication, you're not associated with a large publication as other needs or interests. You come in from it with modest goals. I mean, one story, even quite long, even a 30,000 word story a month is modest compared to the scope of what it takes to put out magazines that have, you know, 15 different departments. Mm -hmm. So you came out of Vanish and went and said, what can we do? And I know you're also a pop-up magazine. I know was another, uh, uh, tell me a bit about that. Cause I know that was another experiment in publishing that you were involved in. And this is, and that's contemporary with when you were writing that feature, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, we had just, I think we'd done one issue of Pop-Up Magazine. We might have done two at that point. It's a live publication. You'd, you'd do it on the spot. It would sort of exist as an ephemeral thing. 
Yeah, it's a, it's basically a live magazine presented on stage. And the original idea was, it's a guy, Doug McGray, and who's in San Francisco, and he's a friend of mine. And he and I and a couple of other people were sort of, it was originally Doug's idea, and we were sort of fleshing it out. Like, what, what if you got photographers together with filmmakers and writers and radio people and sort of created this magazine on stage? Those are not groups that usually sort of present together or you know they they have their own ways of oh their own mediums for their work what if you put them all together and made it live and we got people like michael pollan to do a short piece and then we got academy award-winning documentary filmmakers to do something short and original or something off the cutting room floor and so we have radio producers so it sort of all happens in sequence and it it only happens once so each issue only happens one time which means that it's a magazine built for one audience at one time. And it's become like extraordinarily popular in San Francisco. It sells out in usually under a half hour. And we're now at a 3000 seat symphony hall. And you just did one of these uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Is that right? Yeah, we did one in early November. It was issue seven. It was taken a massive amount of effort to get this all together. It, it's as much effort as publishing a magazine, but you do it for one period, <laughs> yeah, one yeah. short stretch. It really is. It's like we have a magazine closing, but we're up late working, trying to close all these pieces and get them edited and get them ready. And then it happens once and then it goes away. But that, that's there's something actually kind of magical about it in that way. And I think the reason that it's so popular is that it only happens once and it's not recorded. So you can actually, you can't find out anything about it. You can't see the pieces. You can't oh, read great. them. All you can do is go to our website and see what the table <laughs> of contents was for that evening. That's that's a tease. It's challenging and a tease. But but this is, I mean, again, this is a new way of thinking about no one used to do stuff like this. And actually, I love the fact that it's it's almost anti-internet in that there's promotion for it, but that none of the material is available. So the Atavis is kind of the, in some ways the flip side of that, right? Is that you're, you figured a way to take content to commission it and get it out to as broad an audience as possible. And I want to talk about one aspect of this too is, so, you know, when you started the Atavis, it was an editorial product, but you always seemed from the earliest interviews I saw you give and and the blog entries and so forth, you always thought of this as a way to deliver information in whatever the resulting platform was. It wasn't, we're making, you know, it wasn't like the daily, it's not an iPad thing you have to subscribe to on the iPad. It wasn't, we're creating a new form of thing that works in this digital medium. It was, we have words, we have images, we have a narrative structure, and our goal is to get it out to as many platforms as possible. And when I think when you were starting, even just a few years ago, it seems like the, there was this concern that it would be too expensive and difficult and uh, to get into all the channels that were available, even though the channels were expanding with Barnes & Noble's Nook, and you'd Kindle out there already with an increased ability to deliver um, short content for a decent price, uh, Kindle singles. All of these methods were coming out, and you'd have... Uh, you'd be splitting your focus too much mm-hmm. to try to deliver. But now when you launched, your thought was, no, we need to be in every place, right? You want to get these stories out as broadly as possible. We've always sort of tried to have the philosophy that we wanted to find readers or listeners, like wherever they felt like reading or listening uh, or watching. In the case, we have video and some of the things. We actually wanted to be agnostic in terms of where people wanted to consume the stories. Basically we have stories to tell. We want to pay writers to do those stories and then we want to get them out to as wide an audience as possible and ask that audience to pay for them. That's like the basic principle of what we're doing. And so if you're going to ask the audience to pay for them, you have to do two things. One is you have to convince them that it's a story they can't read somewhere else for free because there's an infinite amount of stuff they can read for free. And the second thing is you have to approach them where they already want to read. So you can't say, oh, read this on your desktop when people have iPads. You know, you just 
you really want to be where they're already comfortable with consuming that stuff. So that's why we launched on every platform, including our own app and including in the Kindle store and in the Nooks, in the Barnes and Noble Nook store and all these places. The technical challenge of that was what we solved by building the platform, which is how do you develop all those formats at the same time without making this expensive conversion over and over again, you know, being converting it from EPUB to Mobi to whatever the app right. is, all that stuff. So that's why we built our own platform so that we could create the stories in one place and then basically push a button and they would go to all of those locations. And anyone who buys a story, do they have to buy it in a specific location? Is it more like a subscription where they can buy it and then get access to it in multiple places? Right now, they buy it at wherever they're going to use it, basically. So mm -hmm. right now, if you want the Kindle version, you go to Kindle and you buy it. If you want the Nook version, you go to Nook. Um, we're cut, we're moving in a in a direction of having a little bit of a wider purview in that in that department because now you can buy it on our website you can actually read it on the web there's a web reader and if you've bought it on the website you can also read it in the app you sort of buy it once and read it in either place so that's new as of two stories ago that that we're actually selling directly on the web it's complicated it seems like that's where the store the store issues start to crop up is uh, i've been involved with the um, take control books published by adam and tanya anks these uh, mostly macintosh oriented you know sort of technical how-to books i've written a bunch of them it's done it's been a been incredibly successful for them and it's been a great thing for me and you know we date back seven or eight years now with them and that's been our constant issue is we deliver drm free multi-format stuff from our website you get an account you log in you can download anything you own right but mm -hmm. when you get to the other platform if someone buys it through the apple ibook store if they buy it through amazon we've had to develop some mechanisms ways of confirming so we can let people sort of claim the book but it's still that seems to be a missing piece and it sounds like you're still you're working on parts of that as well because you want to break down these silos because you're interested in the reader. Your relationship is with that reader, not with the... You don't want to be intermediated by the store, but you also don't want to give up the store's sale. I would say that we do want to sell direct. So we would like to have a direct relationship with our readers, in part because I think a lot of our readers just love this kind of work. And so the closer relationship we can have with them, where we're communicating with them directly, telling them what we're up to, giving them inside information on how, how we work and all that sort of stuff. I think that's valuable to us and hopefully valuable to them. At the same time, you know, I'm not one who thinks like we should try to lure everyone out of the Amazon store because I don't want to give Amazon their 30%. Like we, we built that into our, our model. So, right. you know, I'm happy if someone buys it on Amazon, I'm thrilled. In fact, Amazon has been huge for us because they have the Kindle singles bestseller lists and that is really, really big for driving sales. And so that's wonderful. I'm happy if they buy it there. But if they buy it from us, that's also great. You know, it's more about just kind of like getting in front of them. And then if we can, forming some sort of relationship with them, you know, if they're interested in what we're doing on a longer term basis. Right. So you're, you don't have a complaint with Amazon as a, as a sales channel. It's just, uh, I mean, or if I'm just finding it this way, is it sort of, it is that siloing, the DRM silo is that, um, someone who buys it on Kindle, it's not a problem that they buy it through Amazon or that you pay them a fee. I mean, you'd love to conserve the fee, but it's that once they do that, they're not your reader. They're not your customer. They're Amazons and you have to work harder to reach out to them to, to let them know what else you have available or allow them to read that same thing they've purchased in multiple places. Right. That's, that's the, that's the downside if they buy it through retailer. I mean, it's just like, you know, if someone goes and buys your book in a bookstore, the publisher sort of doesn't necessarily know <laughs> anything about that person that the retailer right. owns that information. And, and that's fine too. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, it's really about whether you can communicate with the customer and, and Amazon, 
rightly so. I mean, I don't begrudge Amazon anything in terms of they have that audience because they've been very loyal to the audience and supplying them with what they want. So, you know, that's, we just like to get in front of Amazon's audience, but at the same time, if there's a way that we can have our own little audience, that's very helpful to us. You know, it seemed in the past and the not very distant past that Amazon and a lot of these other, you know, Apple and other platforms for distribution of digital content were jealous about that sort of thing and that they would ding people or not put them on bestseller lists or make it harder if you were running your own platform or own store as well. And I don't feel like I'm hearing that as much anymore. I mean, you've got the reverse situation where Amazon is publishing print books and uh, independent booksellers in Barnes Noble do not want to stock the print or ebook form of that, like the four hour chef. But I don't hear the, the, what is that? The inverse, the converse of that, that, that Amazon and other stores are, uh, upset that you sell directly as long as you tow the line on pricing. You're not underselling them. Does that, is that conform with what you're, what you're experiencing? Yeah. I mean, in our experience, we have not had any issues on that front. I mean, I think like anyone who has a store, you know, if they're selling something, they don't want someone else to be selling it either first or for less money. So that's fair enough. So that's basically what they ask is, you know, if you're going to sell this for less money, we're going to match the price. And, you know, if you're going to put it up somewhere else first, then that bothers us. But in terms of selling it elsewhere, they've, they've been fine with it. I'm sure they would be happier if we just sold it on Amazon, but, um, they don't seem to mind that we sell it elsewhere. And I think, like you say, like, you know, they're also, creating books and they're also publishing them. And so they want them sold in other platforms as well. So I think hopefully everyone benefits if, you know, all of the books are allowed to be wherever people want to buy them. Well, and as a publisher, you find this, I know you're the editor, you're the editor, I should say this as the chief executive officer, you find this <laughs> beneficial to still remain on and expand the number of uh, bookstore and other platforms that you're on though. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, we we're we're looking into adding them all the time. So, I mean, the only problem is so many new, once have cropped up that it's sort of hard to decide how much effort is worth even just like setting the file and figuring out the sales spreadsheets and whatever, what, you know, whether or not they're going to be around long enough, but uh, there's so many new ones, you know, it does feel like uh, even new publishers that they seem to be using um, old mainframe accounting systems and they produce bizarre reports. And uh, I know from various colleagues who've you know worked and put stuff in stores, including the take control folks that um, every year things change and then there's a new reporting system, a new upload system. So there's all the, the technical hassle, but as long as it's, as long as it's worthwhile, um, this is a good transition into from the editorial part though, uh, where the Atavis is a, is a public, it's a mega book, a bookazine uh, that's, publishing monthly and you have you're commissioning things you're the editor of that and that's a very understandable model but now uh the atavist is also a platform for other publishers how does i know mean, i know you put all the work in to make it work for you how does this transition happen where you've got the magazine on one side but now you're a platform for publishing well i mean i, I initially it's it happened i won't say by accident because it wasn't i mean it was deliberate but it certainly that was not the business that we intended to get into originally. I mean, all we wanted to do was publish stories and just kind of see how it went. And the only reason that we built the platform was we were trying to figure out how we would manage the process. There was basically only three of us. How would we manage the process of creating all these right. formats? And we also we do, you know, we do a lot of multimedia in the stories and we like to experiment with that. And so 
you know, I would, we were building an app and I would basically ask Jefferson, who's the CTO and my co-founder, you know, what if we put, you know, could we put an audio clip that sort of popped out here? He would say, okay. And he would build that in. And eventually he was sort of like, why don't I just make a system where you can do this stuff and you can stop asking me about it. And that's kind of where it mm-hmm. came from. And then, you know, after we launched, we really discovered that there were all these other publishers. So I would talk about it occasionally in interviews and that sort of thing. And then publishers came to us saying, oh, well, like, what does this thing look like? And when we showed it to people, I mean, there really was a need for the ability to do this sort of cross-platform publishing. Um, so now the system is actually, I mean, it's a hundred thousand, a hundred or a thousand times more powerful than it was when we started. But now, I mean, now it can actually publish across an iOS app, an Android app to the web and eBooks all from the same place. So really it enables you to do kind of what we do, which is to say, wherever people want to read it, we can produce our magazine. It can produce a magazine. It can produce books. It can produce sort of individual stories. It's kind of a, has a flexible architecture in a way. Oh my God, you're a content management system. What yes. happened? No, I'm sorry. You've been, since, since you've been kicking around for so long, I date back only a few years before when I started getting into the, uh, I think in 94, I started writing pretty seriously. And content management systems, CMSs, are the bane of all writers, editors, technical people's existence. That's, you know, you always have to have a CMS on the back end, something that tracks the stories, lets you post edits, lets you post updates, pushes it out. I vowed to never have to deal with, never have to write a CMS. <laughs> I had to write one. I had to write a CMS for tidbits. Uh, we had to write one for that publication. We couldn't find anything that met our needs. And it seems like there's this weird evolution. That, uh, Marco Arman, who I'm uh, uh, acting as the editor for, for his The Magazine on iOS, uh, he wrote a CMS because there never seems to be a generic solution that meets enough needs. But that's partly because... Publishers often have a very specific focus. We're trying to produce an email newsletter. We're trying to produce a web thing. And you came at it again. You didn't come at it from, we have an existing publication. How do we translate that thing we're already doing into these new realms? You said, we are going to start a publication, and we know there are new realms to translate into. Did that affect the design decisions you made? I don't need to go too deeply in the technical, you know, the programming side, but did that affect the entire approach when you said, we know we are targeting many platforms and we don't know how many there will even be. Yeah, it, it certainly did. I mean, it definitely affected the approach that we were saying, okay, what would this look like if you started from scratch? Not how do we take a PDF and convert it into something that gets pushed into an app, <laughs> but sort of like, yes. okay, you're building this from the ground up and you want it to be as simple as it can possibly be, basically so an idiot can use it because I was the one that was going to be using it. I don't I can do a little bit of HTML, but if there's going to be any even like heavy duty CSS in it, I'm not going to be successful. So it was basically built with me in mind and, and really an editor not having to mess with the code. A designer can, a coder can, but an editor can, can produce something that's hopefully beautiful and works uh, without any of that knowledge. So that was the original sort of idea. And then the Atavist itself, we don't publish to Android yet. Some of our clients who use the system publish to Android. We didn't know at the time, like, do we want to do an Android app? Do we not want to do an Android app? Is it worth doing? And so the system is really built so you can kind of plug that in. So if you decide to do an Android app, then you plug in the Android app, it, you just change the outputs and there it goes. And the same thing with the web. We do publish to the web and that was something we didn't do originally. So we just grafted that on and then you have the same system and hopefully it becomes more powerful without becoming more complex because the problem with these CMSs is you start adding features and features and features and they just get 
incredibly cumbersome and then they don't really do the thing that you wanted them to do originally very easily. So I'm sure that problem will inflict us as well in some ways. That's right. You have to figure out when will that point hit, but it's, it's, I always find there's this issue of how are you encoding the information in the first place? And you set out to say, this will be, you know, and multimedia sounds like, doesn't that sound like a word from the 1950s now, but this will be a a rich media publication as you set out with the notion there's always going to be images, video, words, and there'll be, there could be treatment of text as well. It's be long enough. It needs to be broken up. You had to think of it as something that could be book-like, but had to be transportable. And it, it, I feel like a lot of CMS systems I've worked with, they graft on so many pieces over time. We're not going to have suddenly a new kind of thing that's not video that we watch and view. I mean, maybe animation and you could build in animation, but all the known sorts of types and things you could do were known at the time you built this. It's There's not the, the next big thing that's coming that we have no idea is coming. I hope so. I mean, I guess if we didn't know it was coming, then it would show up and we would not have known it was coming. That's, uh, but that is a uh, conundrum, but it's, I mean, we're not, you know, neural interfaces perhaps, but, right. but I think it's the flexibilities is, um, I, when I started as a typesetter, I worked in these, uh, optical, these mixed digital optical typesetting systems and we coded in something that was very much like SGML as it turned out. And what, but we started in this very raw form. So any file that was created in I don't know, the 1970s, if you could still read an eight inch disc, you could convert that to HTML. You could convert that to anything more of the modern systems seem to lock you into the CMS that you had to take a certain kind of approach and it was a locker. You threw the stuff in there. Mm-hmm. The way you describe your CMS, I haven't seen the back end of it, but the way you describe how people work is not only is this intended for people who aren't programmers or HTML coders, but it's also intended to what your, your starting point is a kind of raw form that's you know formatted and structured, but you're not having to do something in such a way that, as you say, it's not a PDF that you're converting. It's you're taking text, you're taking images, you're taking video, and uh, is all fungible. It can be used in different places in different ways. We can take something that when you, the way it's structured, if it if it's outputting to the app, the the app really knows how to digest all parts of that. So the app will digest a video chapter, but also pop-ups that have video, pop-ups that are maps, and it it was a very intricate layering that we can do. But it can also output an EPUB file that basically is a very clean, pretty EPUB file, but it just strips all of that out and kind of knows, each output knows what it what it needs and what it can get. And so that's kind of what makes it able to do that. So if there's a new, you know, when there's EPUB 3, you just add that on. When there's a new KF8, we add that on, you know, that sort of thing. There's this interesting insight I got from a comment. I'd written an economist item um, just a few days ago about, uh, oh, talking about where Flash f- was in the in- ecosystem for the game Glitch. Glitch had a, a shutting down and they they started not long before you did. This is Stuart Butterfield's uh, company and they were a Flash-based game, which made sense maybe in 2009 or 2008 when they were planning it. They get to 2012 and they can't build a big enough audience flash is mm. declining on the desktop it's been it's now you know officially dead for mobile devices it never showed up on ios and what one of the commenters pointed out about it was you know it may have been a, a platform conflict apple may have found flash incompatible but there's no good reason for different platforms from the standpoint of a software developer someone who writes a program doesn't care that there are different needs, market needs, whatever, for all the different companies making operating systems. And I feel the same way about when you talk about your approach to this is that um, I thought that was great insight that there may be different platforms you're targeting for, but that is of little or no interest to you. You may be able to take advantage of different things in EPUB as a generic format versus the Kindle proprietary format versus uh, something you could do in your own app. 
but the platform is irrelevant to you. You don't care about that, and you're trying to transcend that by having almost translators for these different approaches. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And it's also, to get down into the guts of it, it's a reason that we, even for the iOS app, I mean, I don't know how technical we want to get, but you know, the iOS app is a native app, and we still think there's a lot of value in having a native app. But of course, there's this whole debate about native apps versus HTML5 and which one is worth doing for which types of publications or games or whatever. And our, the structure of the app is such that most of what's inside the app is actually HTML5. So really, <laughs> right. we can we can move in one direction or the other depending on what people want or where it all goes. You know, the idea is not to be is to try to go where the eyeballs are, go where the money is or whatever it is. If the audience wants publications through apps, which I think they do. And I think like the magazine that you guys launched, that Marco launched and you're working on, like is an example of that. But if it turns out that you can go all HTML5 at a certain point and that's worth doing, then we could also go in that direction. Yeah, I should point that out is I'm not exactly a competitor. I guess we're, I think complimentary is that um, Marco's focus is on, you know, medium length, like thousand word feature journalism. I hope we're successful in what we're doing there because there's very little market for, let's say, well compensated work at that range either. And Marco's even pursuing the model that um, we're only getting 30 days rights. We're uh, after publication, which was an old thing 20 years ago. Writers only gave away 30 days rights and now they give away the whole farm partly because of the um i think because of the tassini new york times freelance decision in the the 90s that drug on for a long time through appeals that uh freelancers and even staffers at some point uh staffers less so gave up part of their rights and now you give up all of them for no greater return while the publications that you write for typically get a very high return and it seems part of what you're doing with the atavis both as a platform and as a uh as a publication are in opposition to that, that um, you may have the rights, you may be keeping the rights uh, or, or licensing them in whatever form, but you're trying to give the writer uh, a better return on that by providing them that royalty on the downstream side and the publication or on the editorial operation on your magazine side, and then giving new publishers a way to get into the business where they can have a better relationship with writers and still distribute it widely. Yeah. I mean, the, actually, the kind of crazy thing about the way we work with writers is we actually also give them their rights back. That's great. We go non-exclusive after it's either 90 or 120 days, I think. And we basically say, all right, we go non-exclusive and you can go do other stuff with the story if you want. But every time we sell it, if we resell it to a foreign publisher or we resell it to we do an audio book exclusive or anything like that, we're going to do the same royalty split with you all the way down the line, which is usually 50, 50. So most of the writers are, they don't, you know, they don't really want to go hawk their thing somewhere else. Like they're happy to keep going. So we're sort of gambling that they could say, okay, now I'm going to go sell it on a Kindle on my own. More likely though, I think is that you'll find people, I mean, it depends on how many people do things, but it's, if someone then wants to write a full length book and to have the rights to that, to publish as part of a full length book, or you know, with the stuff we're doing with the magazine, if someone wants to write a series of essays or parts of pieces, and then they can pull it together without having to come to us or you for permission to do right. it yeah. versus even just saying, I want to put it on my website or I want to publish it in some other form because the atavist you know, reach X and I want to do more. It's it just that I think it's the flexibility for writers, which means you'll get more people, it seems like, coming into this because they'll know that they could potentially make a return that was worth their time to, to do the long-form work in the first place. Yeah, and especially if they're if they don't need the money all right away and they're willing to sort of give it time because you know, we have stories that are over a year old that 
will net the writer, you know, three or 400 bucks in a month, which is, mm-hmm. you know, if you said, oh, you're getting paid 300 bucks for this story, you'd be like, well, okay, this was a 10,000 word story, but they've been getting paid that much for 12 months. And then they got the bigger checks at the beginning when it was really selling, or it was on the bestseller list. So over time, if you really add it up, it's, it's not bad to get a $400 check, uh, you know, a year or a year and a half after you've published the story, uh, for basically, you know, it's just residuals on down the line. So, you know, it does offer that possibility. They're not all going to sell forever, <laughs> but kind of like opens up a new window in that way. As you well know, the dream of the nonfiction writer or in, in fiction, it's easier because fiction should be timeless, I suppose, or, or much of it. But the nonfiction writer's dream is the evergreen, the thing that sells consistently, even at a low level forever with right, no revision right. <laughs> happens sometimes. Right. Albert Einstein, you know, you write a book about Albert Einstein. He's not going to die again. So... <laughs> You hope that's it. The one part we didn't talk about is, is the feedback part is what do you hear from the reader side of this? What's the participation angle here? I mean, there are no comments and so forth. This isn't a web, this isn't a blog with comments, but what happens on that side of the equation? Well, really we're, we're kind of, that's something we're, we're a little behind on or that we haven't really fully developed is sort of like the communication back and forth with the audience, which is sort of a little anti-modern of us. Well, I don't know. It's becoming modern again. Everyone's rejecting comments now. So perhaps you're ahead of the yeah, time. Maybe so maybe we're, we're on the next wave of having no comments. We just through social media is sort of how we communicate with people on Twitter and we get feedback on, on various things or people write us or we can see like bloggers reviewing it and Carl Zimmer launched this whole science eBooks site so we can he'll commission people to review anything that we have is science related. And so we kind of, you know, gather feedback and, and, and even on Amazon, of course, has reviews. So there'll be 30, 40, 50 reviews sometimes of people. So you can kind of get a sense of how people are responding to it. That's great. I forget about that. Is that because these are book-like in that respect that then they get the attention that books do where articles, no one reviews articles typically. In the old days, there were actually publications that did review articles or so forth, but newsletters and things, but no one reviews those. So you get the advantage of the book there. Yeah. I mean, the tricky thing is if you're working in an app, as you may also know, although I think the magazine is probably reviewed very well, but you know, you get reviewed on technical grounds in the iTunes store. So it's sort of like this button doesn't work. That's this right. thing's a piece of crap. People, they just, I couldn't <laughs> figure out how to unsubscribe. That's I know, the, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing that it's a different type of feedback than the actual feedback you get to the stories themselves. So I should also, I should say, I love what you guys are doing. I'm, I'm a huge oh, thank fan you very it. much. It's, it's fun. Well, this is what's great is like, it's, I think, um, the Greenfield thing I keep coming back to is if you don't have to, if you don't have to have a printing plant, uh, then there's so much more you can do. And, and I think it even goes beyond that. Like the idea of not having a staff. Um, yeah. I mean, you got, you're a small operation. I know you've expanded and you've got an investment in order to build up the platform side, but you know, you don't have a hundred people in a newsroom or five people in a newsroom is that you are trying to, um, again, and kind of the, the model of this podcast is that you're acting as a layer between that facilitates the creativity reaching an audience as opposed to being a gatekeeper or being the, you're not a bank full of, <laughs> a bank full of indentured writers who get a fee and you reap all the profit off the top. You're trying to provide a pipeline between those two sides. Yeah. And the, and the writers get paid. And I think you guys are the, taking the similar approach that we took from the beginning, which is like the writers get paid before we get paid. The writers get paid at the same time that we get paid. You know, nobody gets paid before the writers do because they're the one that they're, they're supplying everything that the whole thing's built on. So I just, what I really a like weird that idea. Yeah. It's a strange notion that we had to come back around that. And, you know, I, I think that the thing that I've been hoping, and I don't know 
there's not enough money in the system to make it happen yet. And th- that'll be, I think, the, the challenge of the next 10 years is um, with so many people who used to write, uh, look at local journalism and then the rise of hyperjournalism, little sites that get local sponsorship and sometimes do deeply investigative stuff. The rise of nonprofit groups like ProPublica, which can do a few big features a year of the kind that every newspaper in the country used to do or the huge, you know, the 40,000 people in newspaper newsrooms down to, I don't know what is 14 or 12,000 now, like there's been so much lost opportunity and I don't care about it from the, I mean, I do care about the people lost their jobs, but it's that lack of exposure, that lack of investigation and your approach at the Atavist, both on the editorial and platform side is it provides a way to facilitate that investigation by taking technology out as a punishment, as a penalty in the middle, that instead of it being the thing that guts your ability to gain an audience, it becomes the thing that enables it um, because you're starting on this side of the analog uh, physical um, slash digital divide that happened. Yeah, I hope so. I think still, as we talked about before, this, the challenge is always going to be funding it. And we focus on particular types of stories, these sort of narrative stories that are very rich with characters. And those are things that we feel like we can sell, even if they're on very difficult topics. And we have an investigative story coming out tomorrow, actually. But some stories may not lend themselves to that. Covering the sort of like local school board is yeah, it's a tough sell as a Kindle single. So it's not a cure-all for everything. But I think you're right that if you could make technology not the obstacle, but actually sort of help you find the audience, then that's that's a beginning. You still have to figure out where you're going to fund whatever type of work you're doing, but at least you're not worried about how you're having to pay for technology all the time and, and change it. Uh, it's, it's an interesting position to be in, and um, it's it's fun to be in the middle of it. I think, I mean, we're, we're in the middle of it in two different ways, and, uh, and I look forward to seeing where it develops. All right, my pleasure. I enjoyed it. My guest was Evan Ratliff, the co-founder, CEO, and editor of The Atavist. This is The New Disruptors, a podcast about bridging the connection between creation and attention. You can find us on the web at muleradio.net slash newdisruptors. On Twitter and ADN, we are at newdisruptors. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite app or through iTunes. If you'd like to sponsor the show, visit sponsor.muleradio.net. You can drop me a note via newdisruptors at muleradio.net. Our theme music was composed by Jeff Tolbert. I'm Glenn Fleischman. Join us again next time.